Well, uh, big news. We heard it a little bit last week, but just to let you know that October 31st, uh, we're back together. Uh, so these guys have been sort of talking about what's happening. That's the date, October 31st. And I want to, uh, you know, there's lots of excitement around it and so on. But I'll tell you what's going to be hard. Um, we've got two words we're going to use during this time, rebuild, regather. Uh, we're going to regather, of course, get church going again. But it's going to be a whole season of rebuilding everything. Uh, it's all just kind of gone down. We've got to rebuild it back up again. It's going to be hard. Don't, I mean, there'll be an excitement initially about coming back to church, but that'll wear off. It'll just seem pretty strange for quite some months, maybe a year. But you've got to love doing hard things. They're good for you. And it's, uh, it's exciting to actually be part of rebuilding church, getting it started again, getting the kids' ministry going, the youth ministries going, all the small group work, all everything going again. So look forward to that. October 31, be praying about it, get ready for it. Let me pray now. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us um, uh, be part of this rebuilding, regathering, that you might help our church, but churches across the country, uh, start up again in a way that, please, honours you uh, and causes your word to, to sound out. And we uh, do pray for the great um, blessing it is to be gathered to your, uh, to, around your word, to your people. We pray that it would be a wonderful time. Help us uh, be determined to give ourselves to that over the next months and years as we rebuild in a context that's very different. We do pray now that as we uh, wrestle with this word uh, that you've given us, that please you might give us uh, clarity of mind, uh, hearts that are soft towards you and a readiness to be captured by the things you've given us in Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series tonight. Uh, you've heard about it a little bit through the week, no doubt. Many of you in small groups and so on. We're starting the book of Hebrews. And look, you know, every book we do, I get excited by. And the book of Hebrews is fantastic. It really is a rich and deep book. You know, if you've never read the Bible, you might be tuning in. This is the first time you, well, last little while you've been checking things out. If you've never read the Bible before, I'd urge you to grab one. Grab a modern translation, not one with these and thous and so on. Grab one and read it. Read this book. Read one of the Gospels. Uh, I promise you, it will surprise you, shock you, captivate you. Uh, because the things it actually talks about are massive. They're life-changing. They're things of God, the creator of the universe, connecting with us. Uh, grab hold of it. Now, Hebrews is all of that. And in fact, the first few lines of this new book are so mind-blowing, we're only going to focus on the first three verses tonight. Next week, we'll hit up angels. But this week, we're just going to look at the first three verses. And it's worth noting that this book, actually, those first three verses are the first lines of a sermon. Right at the end of this little book, the book of Hebrews, you'll have him talk about it as a word of exhortation. That's a kind of a technical word in the first century for a sermon. Uh, and we have what, what effectively he was a transcript, a written form of a sermon that was preached in the ancient world. It's part of the great variety that is the Bible. Uh, and again, if you're new to the Bible, let me offer this observation. The, the Bible actually isn't one book. It really is just a kind of a filing cabinet of 66 books all bound together for convenience. 66 different books uh, written over 1,300 years by 40 different authors. Uh, it's an astonishing thing. Very different kinds of writing. Last term, you heard a bit about Ruth, but you know Esther, we've been looking at a couple of books that record events in history, 
that just report on the events of a nation's history and of one family's history. But now we're moving into a part of the Bible, a book that is actually a transcript of a sermon. They're all very different. You know, when I read the Bible for the first time, I didn't grow up in a church home. I um, came to it later. When I read the Bible for the first time, I was quite surprised that it wasn't just a bunch of pithy sayings. I thought it was just going to be proverbial sayings everywhere. And I was shocked to see its, its history, its prophetic words, uh, its reflections on that history. It's the sermon here, it's wisdom literature, it's songs great variety um, which is all very interesting because of those 66 different books over 1300 years by 40 authors they all say the same thing there's an incredible unity of thought across all of those centuries with all of those different authors writing in all different places makes you think there's probably one author it's probably a miracle isn't it it's one of those pieces of evidence, actually, that there is a God at work in this particular document. Also worth noting, this book of Hebrews as a sermon, uh, you thumb through it and it gives you a little bit of a sense of what the early church's experience was like. What was it like to go to the early church? You know, was it kind of like um, lots of swaying and hands in the air and all kinds of emotions and so on? And, or was it, um, you, you know, like a 15-minute uh, homily about the newspaper and art what was it like to go to church there's all kinds of different churches we experience well here's just a quick insight the book of hebrews is what their sermons were and just notice this it's 13 chapters long 7,000 words you read that at a moderate pace that's about a 50 minute sermon this is a solid bit of teaching that was part of the early church they expected you to think when you came to church they expected you to wrestle with deep things. And I want to encourage us ongoingly as a church to keep pursuing that same ambition, that we might be thinking people, that we might wrestle with ideas, wrestle with meat, which he'll talk about as we go along. Now again, to anticipate with the book, it was, as a sermon, it was written, it was spoken to a group of early Christians, likely Jews, who had converted to Christianity in that very first century and it was right, written to this group of Christians converted from Judaism who were under a lot of pressure they were being persecuted chapter 12 and with a serious kind of not the kind of persecution we talk about but a serious persecution that was costing them personally and this book was written to say to them stick at it it's worth pressing on it's worth whatever the cost is just take a moment you have a friend who's drifting away what would you say to them to stir them and help them continue to press on in the things of Christ even though it's costing them a great deal what would you say to them and it's worth actually perhaps just pushing pause make sure you come back on but push pause and have a quick talk reflection whoever you're with what might you say to someone what helps you keep pressing on well, that's what this book is about, helping us push on and press on. Uh, and over the next weeks, we're going to have a feast as we dig into all of this. Now, tonight, we're just looking at the first three verses, which I was probably the first 30 seconds of this ancient sermon. Uh, and I'm going to give it to us in three headings. Three points. 
they build. The first couple of points uh, lay the foundations and then we come to the very third point, the, the very big one. Let me give it to you now, the first point. When you read these verses, the first point that comes home to us is the fact that God has spoken. God is a speaking God. He's not silent, absent or distant. He has spoken. And that little piece is critical grace. Let me show you from the text. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and so on. You see those two verses, the first two verses kind of are the, the headline of what follows and, and the, the, the drumbeat beneath the main point, not the main point yet, but the, the drumbeat behind the main point is that God is a speaking God. He has spoken in the past. We'll come to that in a second. He has spoken in the last days. We'll come to that in a second. But in both times he's spoken. He's a speaking God. What follows after verse 2 there, having told us that he has spoken to us by him, his son, the next bunch of sentences, phrases, ideas that follow whom he appointed, through whom he made, they're just filling out who the son is, the message that we're given of the son. But the main point is that he's a speaking God. Now the reason I point this out is because the fact that God speaks is an extraordinary and desperately important idea to reflect on. So just ponder this with me. It's one of the key drivers for the book. Flip over to chapter 12. Grab your Bible, flip all the way through to chapter 12. One of the key drivers for the whole book is this idea of God speaking to us. And so as he comes towards the end of this sermon, which is encouraging people to stick at it, the things of Christ, look what he says in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they do not escape, escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, which I take it as a reference to the Jewish word in the Old Testament, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, the son who speaks to us? At that time, his voice shook the earth back in Mount Sinai. But now he has promised once more, I'll shake not on the earth, but the heavens. Be careful that you don't refuse him who speaks. This whole letter, this sermon will have a series of references to God speaking. It's a deeply important issue. And it speaks to one of those most often used critiques of God. You may hear from friends, you may actually feel it yourself, um, kind of reasons to be a bit down on God uh, one of the ones that comes one of the reasons people stay aloof from the things of God is this line that he is silent it's captured kind of really well in that idea of if I were God I'd make myself known it's a beautiful little sentence that sort of resonates doesn't it you know if I were God and I wanted people to believe in me well, if I was running the show, I'd do much more to make people believe. I'd come closer to them. I'd get involved in their lives. I'd tap them on the shoulder and speak to them, you see. If I really wanted people to believe, I'd do more work. That's sort of a popular idea around the place. The assumption is that he hasn't done enough, which therefore lets me off the hook, you see. Uh, you, you know, I'd love to believe in him, but he's not done enough to make it easy for me to believe in him. So it's his fault that I don't believe, not mine. Well, in light of that thinking, 
these verses make a massively significant claim that he has spoken. He has made himself known. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Um, Moses says there to the people of Israel, these words, Has anything so great as this ever happened? Has any other people heard the voice of God? Moses is reflecting on the experience of Mount Sinai and the way that God had come close to this people and spoken to them, given them Ten Commandments and the law. Do you know, the Christian faith is at heart a religion of revelation where the God of the universe reveals himself to humanity. Now, this does have an important qualification. He has spoken, but he has spoken in a certain place. His special revelation that he delivers to us, he's speaking to us to make us be able to see him and understand him, is in a certain place in a certain way. Verse 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. There's a location to that speaking of God in the past. And in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. There's a location to that speaking. The reason I draw attention to this is that um, God speaking to us is not like the force out of Star Wars. I don't know if in lockdown you've gone back through the Star Wars movies and so on, but one of the things that is part of that whole world, that makeup world, is the idea of a, a force, a God, very in Eastern, it's Eastern religious kind of idea, where God is, is infused in everything. He is the force. And the idea of communicating with the force is really about tuning into the force because he's there all the time to tune into, you see. That's a very popular way of thinking about how ultimate gods are like. It's called pantheism, the idea that God is in everything. It's not what the Bible says. God in the Bible is we're shown him to be a person he's personal he's not a force that inhabits everything he's a person and he speaks not into the air but in a concrete way that's located in the old testament we have a record of him speaking in that way and in the new testament we have a record of him speaking in that way it's a tangible word. It's not just through the air. Um, you actually get in chapter 2, verse 3, flip over to chapter 2, verse 3, that this author, this preacher himself, recognises his dependence on this concrete word. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, the Son, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This man didn't hear that word himself. He heard it through others who heard that word. The word of God is spoken into a particular context, which means this. If you want to get to know God, you need to go to the place where he's spoken. Which I think is a very confronting truth for convenience Australians. God has revealed himself, but we want him to reveal himself while I'm walking on the beach while I'm bushwalking, while I'm driving. I, I just want him to come to me wherever I am. No, no, no. It means if God has spoken in a particular place and you want to get to know that God, you've got, you've got to go to the place where he speaks. We'll come back to this idea in a moment. He has spoken, first point. 
Second, history only really has two different kinds of time. History only really has two different kinds of time. Now, this seems like a completely way off topic, but it's, I promise you it's important. Um, we tend to think of time as something that is... Um, we, we have all kinds of different categories for the way we think about time. So, you know, it's 21st century, 20th century, 19th century, or, or, or um, the, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance. We have different ways of categorising time. Or... Um, you know, Gen Z, uh, millennials, boomers, you know, we have this kind of way of thinking about categorising time. But the way this author speaks, there's only two times. Verse 1, in the past, and verse 2, in these last days. There's only two categories of time, the past and the last days. What is the past? The past is a reference to our ancestors, God speaking to our ancestors, and I take it he means his Jewish forebears through the prophets at many times in various ways. The, the, the past is that period of time with the Jewish ancestors. What is the last days a reference to? Well, come with me to cross to chapter 9. Chapter 9. Look there at verse 26. Uh, halfway through but he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself now that little word culmin well, big word culmination is actually just the word end end of the ages he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages the culmination of the ages and it's this idea that with the coming of Jesus, the, 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 the time clock on time shifts into a new shape. It shifts into the culmination, the end, the last days. Up until that point was the past. With the coming of Jesus, this is where we get the language of, of BC and AD. Our Christian forebears understood this concept well. And they understood that before Jesus, it was one era of history, BC. But with the coming of Jesus, a new thing occurred. We entered into the last days. And they used a little Latin phrase, in the year of our Lord, AD. In the, in, this is, whatever century you're in, you're now in the last days, the year of our Lord. It's a very different year. If I can give you a sporting illustration to try and capture it. Um, in uh, sports, many games that you know you you have two kinds of time in sport you have ordinary time and then you have extra time you know, I mean ordinary time might be 80 minutes of, uh, of football and um, uh, you know what I'm talking not soccer football uh, 80 minutes of this game and then if there's a draw you'll go into extra time different kind of time it's a different kind of time because it's it's the very end of time it's the urgent time there's not going to be any time after that time. This is, this is really the, the time to really go hard at it if you hadn't gone hard at it before. In the Bible, there's only two kinds of time. There's the time up to the coming of Christ. And then at that point, the last days begin. Whatever century you're in, you're in the last days. Because what is going to follow 
is the final return of Christ to establish his kingdom without dispute, without conflict, to eradicate evil and sin from the world, remove death, repair everything and establish himself as the rightful, loving ruler of all of the universe without contest. And in that context, the last days are this urgent moment that God has held off that final end for this period called the last days because of his desire to bring people to faith and salvation. The point of all of this is, in light of the great return of Christ, the great judgment day, there's only two times that matter. Pre-Christ, the past, and the last days. Whether this happened in the first century is irrelevant. It happened in the, in, happened in the last days, which is our days. Which therefore means this is a word to any in the last days. First two points. God has spoken. There's only two kinds of time in light of the end and the, and the first coming of Christ. The past, Old Testament, and the last days. Third point. This is the big one. God has spoken in each of these times, but he's spoken in each of these times differently. There's a unity between these two. It's the same God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, but in these last days, the same God has spoken. There's a continuity between those times. But what I want you to notice is verse 2 has the word but. And it's capturing the contrast that's being drawn between verse 1 and 2. The way God spoke in the past is different to the way he speaks in the last days. This is huge. This is the big idea. What is the difference between the way he spoke in the past and the way he speaks in the last days? Well, in the past... He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now that word, well, there's a word translated at many times. That word could also be translated piecemeal, bits and pieces. And what's being said is that in the past, God spoke, but he spoke a bit here and a bit there, uh, piecemeal. And he spoke in lots of different ways through visions and writing on the wall and um, donkeys and <laughs> prophets. And he spoke in all kinds of different ways, a bit here and a bit there. It's the way you might speak when you're commuting into Sydney or somewhere, when you go to the train and you just meet someone on the platform for a moment. You just say a couple of words, a bit, get on the train, go to sleep. <laughs> it's the, it's, you know, the next day you say a few more bits that's the way you might think of the Old Testament, because that's the past. God spoke in the Old Testament a bit here, a bit there, piecemeal. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And the point being made here is that the word that God speaks in the last days is not a bit here, a bit there. It's not piecemeal. It's not in many different ways. It's full. It's complete. 
It's in one way. By the sum. It's a final word. It's a fulfilled word. And that point is obvious and he makes sure it's obvious to us by saying who this son is. That's why the second half of verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 run like they do. But in these last days, he's spoken in a new way. He's spoken to us by his son, not piecemeal bits and pieces, but by his son. Now get who that son is. He is the one who is appointed heir of all things. He's the one through whom the universe was made. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And he provides purification for sin in such a way that it's finished. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Unlike the past. You see, when you see who the Son is, the contrast between the way of the Old Testament and the way of the New Testament is very clear. No longer it is a piecemeal bit here, bit there. It's in the Son. And given who the Son is, it's the fullest way of speaking. There's no more thing to be said given who the Son is. Now I'm going to, uh, each of those things about the Son deserves long reflection. Each of them is quite profound. I'm going to give you two lines on each. You ready for this? Who is this Son? Well, he is the one who is appointed heir of all things. That is the one who is designated to receive all of the universe as his possession. He's the heir. He's going to inherit you and me. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16 says, we were made by him and for him. He's the firstborn. Another way of saying the same idea. We'll come to this next week. To be the firstborn is to be the one who inherits everything. That's Jesus, the son. Verse uh, is the one through whom, verse 2, the one through whom all things are created. He is the agent of creation. Uh, now we start to see that there's a complexity about what's going on here. The agent of creation, the one through whom creation's made, what's being said here. Verse 3, he is the radiance of God's glory. The radiance of his glory. What? What's being said here, that word radiance is the idea of um, um, shining out. And a quick little illustration that might help here is that what's being said of God is that he's like the sun, S-U-N, the sun in the sky, which is a thing, you know, it's a gas ball. But you know the sun, S-U-N, by its brilliance, by its, the light rays and the heat that come from it. And what this writer is saying is that Jesus is the light rays the heat the glow that comes from god which makes you start to think well who is this son is he someone else no it actually sounds like he's so intimately connected with god that he's the glory of god and that's what it says next he's the exact representation of his being this son is actually god exactly representing himself to us because he's the the outflow of who god is which makes you think this son is actually God, which is the very point. And so you now start to find yourself going, well, who is God? 
God has an agent who creates the way he creates through an agency. There is one who is the overflow of his brilliance and his glory. Who is this God? And yet that overflow and exact representation of who God is sits down at the majesty in heaven. It sounds like the well, we've been thinking about this as Christians for 2000 years and we've coined a word to make sense of this. It's the word Trinity. That God is not a simple monad. He's not a simple, there's, there's a oneness to who God is, but that oneness of who God is, is seen in three persons, not three separate, but three distinct expressions of who he is. Three persons. So that Jesus, the son, is the father creates but creates through the son as the one god and when you meet jesus you meet the very glory of god you meet the exact representation of who god is what an extraordinary thing and you find yourself going how do you make sense of that you can't you know i've always found it helpful over the years to realize that i can't comprehend the the world i live in and so to start to find that god himself might be beyond my comprehension is actually a comfort Imagine that there was a God that was simple to understand and yet the creation he made was too complex to understand. That would make you think the God that's simple to understand is perhaps one we made up. But if the universe that's been made by this God is beyond my comprehension, it should be no surprise that the God who made that universe is beyond my comprehension. And that's exactly what you find in these verses. The point the preacher is making is that in the past, God spoke bits and pieces here and there. It was God speaking. But in these last days, he has spoken a word that is the most full, the glorious, the, 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 the final, the complete. Why? Because the word that's spoken is himself. It's the son. He's talking, of course, of the Jesus event. The coming of Jesus into the world. The son being born as a man. Teaching. Healing. Performing miracles. Calming storms. Showing God to us. Loving lepers. Loving sinners. Walking with the tax collectors. Showing God to us. Revealing, speaking about who God is. And then his death and his resurrection. That whole event, the son, is how God has spoken to us. And you see again how you don't just get it in the air. You have to go to the people who actually heard him speak and saw him do and hear what they have to say. That's how you experience the son, God speaking to us. The point, given who Jesus was and is... If that is God's word to us in the last days, there's no greater word that can be given. What more can God have to say if he speaks himself in the person of Jesus? You know, it's a great blasphemy. To, so the Islamic faith that suggests that Jesus is just a prophet and Muhammad is another prophet bringing more revelation fails to appreciate actually who Jesus really is because Jesus is God's final word there's no more word there's no more prophet to come to give more word Jesus is not just another messenger from God he is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being something new has happened in human history 
God has given his final word, his fullest word, his complete word. Because it's his son who comes 2,000 years ago and is recorded for us in the New Testament. Now, I know there's lots of different kinds of people listening. Uh, many of you are followers of this Jesus. You've been persuaded, of course, as I am. But many still are checking things out. And I just might offer some thoughts for you. Um, you, you not, may not be sure what to make of Jesus. You may still be wondering about who he is. But I want you to urge you to appreciate um, that this is the message about Jesus. Within a few years of his death and then claimed resurrection... Within just a few years, people were speaking of him like this. They were talking him of him as the exact representation of God, as the effulgence, the, the brilliance of the glory of God, the one who upholds the universe by his word at every moment, the one who provides purification for sin. They were talking of him like this. Long before there was time for legend, to establish this book is written within decades Jesus's brothers were persuaded he was this do you know how hard it is to persuade your brother of anything you've done that's good um, Jesus was able to persuade his brothers and they died saying he was who he said he was something happened back then you may not be persuaded at the moment, but can I urge you to at least appreciate something did happen. It's changed the world. It's how we now have AD, BC, AD. It's now every Western civilization shaped by something happened by then that was monumental. What was it? Check it out. Because what this says is that that was God's great last word to humanity. He has spoken in these last days. There's no more word to be had. And if you want to know God, that's the place to go and listen. And here's where we cycle back to that idea that if I were God, I'd make myself clearer. You know, I, I, want to, I don't want to be rude, right? But I do want to test the sincerity of that comment in your own life is it really the case that you think god has made it too hard and it's uh if if he was serious about us all wanting to believe in him he would have made it easier are you serious about that or is it possible you're using that as a smokescreen because you actually don't want to find out what he says one of the ways to test whether it's just a smokescreen is to actually recognize that if he has spoken in a certain place it's up to you to go and look at it god is not going to chase you around he is god if you really are serious that you would believe god if he could show himself to you well go to the place where he's shown himself you know uh, one of the great dangers for us is that we can pretend we are sincere when really we're looking at excuses to keep away. God is a God who has given us ample evidence, all the evidence we need in the Son. But he's not chased us in such a way that we can't but embrace him. 
He's given us an opportunity to decide whether we want him and so pursue him. Let me apply it more. The original preacher has his application. I want to get to that in just a second. Uh, we've just got a few more minutes. But let me just give a couple of smaller applications to us in our day and age. God has spoken in the Son, in the event of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, all the words around that event and so on. Can I urge you to beware of the modern notion of learning styles? Beware of the modern notion of learning styles. Back in the 70s and 80s, which I know is another century, uh, back in the 70s, most school teachers were kind of taught the idea that people have different learning styles. Some people learn by reading, some people learn by listening, some people learn by watching, uh, they're visual, some people learn um, by music and by um, tactile touching and so on everyone's got different learning styles and one of the critiques back then of the education system was it relied too heavily on one kind of learning style and if we can just get a variety of learning styles then people will all better learn that was back in the 70s and 80s it was very popular lots of teachers that were educated back through then tend to run with this idea it's come into hard times in recent years it's fallen out of favor as they begin to do more research around this whole idea but putting that aside the danger for us is that we can imagine God will be available to us depending on our learning style. You know, he will, he will, if you're a visual person, then he'll give you visuals. If you're a feeling person, he'll give you more feelings. You, you know, if you're, a, if you're an audible person, he'll, he'll speak to you so you can hear. You know, he'll, he'll try and bend to fit your learning styles. It's just not so. How has God spoken to us? Verse 2, by his son. How do you know about this son? Chapter 2, verse 3, by listening to those who heard him, by listening to the record written for us in the New Testament. You can't meet the son apart from his word, which therefore means we are dependent on God's way of speaking to us and learning to respond to how he has spoken, not how we would like him to speak. This is fundamental. If we're going to know God and grow in God, you've got to learn to use his language. You've got to learn to be good at the way he speaks and not require him to fit into your speech. You know, it's, um, you see this play out in a number of different ways. There's been occasions where I've been in groups of people where there's, you know, sitting in a circle, you know, come for, you know, Bibles on their laps, praying that God might speak to us, waiting for him to speak. And all the time <laughs> I'm sitting there going, he, he's spoken here, just open it, let him speak. But now we wait for some other voice, you see. Now God has spoken in these last days and he has spoken to us in his son, and we meet his son in the New Testament records of that son. By his Holy Spirit, his spirit works to illuminate this spoken word to us. Do you know this all plays into the idea of guidance? You know, how do I, how do I hear what God would have me do in various different circumstances? How do I pay attention to what he wants me to think and do? Well, we've got a whole weekend. Weekend's coming up, which is what date again? December Third to the fifth, make sure you get along. It'll be a great weekend to think about how, the, how we hear God 
in the very practical issues of guidance. Let me give you another point here. Jesus' word, the word of Jesus, is not just another religion, another prophet among many, which now moves us closer to the preacher's point. You know, you can't just move in and out of Jesus as if whatever religious expression you choose will connect you to God. That's the very point the author's making. To his Jewish listeners, who now have two religious options. They were Jews, who have become Jesus followers. But because of the persecution as Jesus followers, they're tempted to go back to Judaism, which was a protected religion in the first century. And this author is saying to them, don't go back. Don't drift away from Jesus. Don't go back to Judaism. Because God did speak in the Old Testament, but he's now spoken. His fullest final word in Jesus. And given who Jesus is, he is not just one more word. He is not just another way. He is the fullest way, the complete way, the way that the Old Testament was all anticipating. Don't go back. There's nowhere to go outside of Jesus. You know, Christians are often perceived to be narrow. At least an older style of Christian. You don't tend to see it as much amongst modern Christians, which is a problem. Um, Christians are often perceived to be exclusive. Our religion's right and other religious faiths are wrong. We tend to communicate that there's only one way, which is a horrible thing to do in today's culture, which is meant to be about everyone being right, except the one who says not everyone's right. But here's the thing. Christians are bound over to be exclusive in our claims about Jesus. We are bound over to teach that there is only one way to the Father, not because we're arrogant, not because we're bigoted, but because we're persuaded, persuaded that Jesus is who he says he is. He is who this preacher says he is. He is the one who is appointed heir, through whom everything's been made. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the one who sustains all things by his word, provides purification for sins. That is said of no other human. And if it's true of Jesus then he is the only way. He's not just one amongst many. And that's the point of this author. If you walk away from Jesus into any other religious expression, you have walked away from the truth to falsehood. Don't go back. There's nowhere to go back to. Chapter 12, verse 25. How shall we escape if we ignore such a word? Friends, let me finish by saying this message of Hebrews is confronting and it's compelling. It's confronting because it tells us that there is a great deal at stake. Jesus is not just a lifestyle option. He's not just another idea. He's not just a prophet. He's not, he is God himself come amongst us. This is very, this is, God has spoken in these last days with a great urgency that the end is about to come. And his final word is Jesus. He's spoken a word that is so full and terrifying and great. And there's nowhere else to go. Ex that's confronting, but it's also compelling. The word God has given us 
is a word that's the exact representation of his being. The, the brilliance of his glory you get to see in Jesus. Come to Jesus, you come to God. God has spoken such a word. It's compelling. Let me pray. Ah, great God, we thank you that you are a speaking God, that you have spoken. We thank you that you have spoken such a final word. We thank you that you didn't just send another messenger, but you came in the person of the Son. And you came with all the brilliance and glory of the Son. You came with a full and final, fulfilled, complete word. Please help us listen. Please help us be captivated by the truth of who Jesus is. That that might keep us captured to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have a God, um, as we just heard, that is revealed.